If you listen to this podcast and find anything at all valuable, make sure you take a screenshot and tag me on Instagram at Billy Garten Jr. so I can see it and repost that to my story. Also, if you have any questions or inquiries about what you want me to speak about on this podcast, I want to know. Message me at Billy Garten Jr. and I'll be sure to get back. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Inspiring Young Aspirers podcast. Welcome to the Inspiring Young Aspirers podcast. I'm your host, Billy Garten Jr., a 21-year-old entrepreneur and professional athlete. On this podcast, we'll be interviewing some of the most successful world leaders in their space in both business and sport. People who've amassed success, wealth, abundance, and most importantly, happiness, often after fighting incredible adversity. The hope is that through this podcast, we're not just going to inspire you or motivate you, but rather through the tips and hints that my guests share, spur you into action. If you're young and motivated, join me on this journey as we ignite the passion through some of the world's most inspiring stories. You know, when you wake up every day knowing exactly what you're striving for, nothing can stop you. Starting out my podcast, it was fundamental to me that I make it as professional as possible. And I could not do that without the help of Podcast Backdrops. Make sure you check out Podcast Backdrops on Instagram and put in the code BillyGarten to receive a special discount. Now let's dive into the episode. Have you ever heard the saying, the groundwork of all happiness is health? Well, we're going to take it one step further today and say that the groundwork of all health is nutrition. Today's guest, Dr. Stephen Gundry, is a world-renowned heart surgeon, he's a medical researcher, he's the former president of the American Heart Association, he's the best-selling author of The Plant Paradox, he's performed over 10,000 surgeries, an incredible stat is that he holds the record for the longest survival of a pig-to-baboon heart transplant, and currently he is the director and founder of the International Heart and Lung Institute as well as the Center for Restorative Medicine, where every single day he helps patients learn how to take control of their weight, health, and energy by using his surprisingly simple diet advice. On top of that all, though, Dr. Stephen Gundry is here today to inspire us all. And the reason being is because he left his life's work of being a heart surgeon and his entire career, while at its peak, by the way, after he found that he was treating patients merely based on symptoms they were having rather than addressing the root cause. So we're here today to find out what that root cause is. Doctor, thank you so much for coming on. Billy, thanks for having me on the podcast. Beautiful. Well, I want to start here with what we were talking about a little bit off air. What made you feel so strongly, Doctor, that you had to leave your profession at its absolute peak to pursue other passions? So I'll, I usually get long-winded on this, but I'll try to be brief. Um, I was uh, chairman and professor of cardiothoracic surgery and pediatrics at Loma Linda University for a very long time. And I became famous for operating on people who nobody else wanted to operate on. And there are a few of us idiots uh, around (laughs) the world. 
And people literally would come who would be turned down as too dangerous or not worth it or nothing could be done. And I met a guy now over 20 years ago who I call Big Ed in all my books. He's in your books, yeah. yeah. And he was from Miami, Florida, 48 years old, uh, big, huge guy, hence yeah. the name Big Ed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he had inoperable coronary artery disease. All his arteries were blocked up. And he'd gone around the country looking for idiots like me to operate on him and everybody turned him down. Yeah. So he came to me and uh, showed me the movie of his heart, the angiogram. And I agreed with everybody else. I wasn't going to do him any good. Right. And he says, well, look, um, I've been at this now for six months and I've been on a diet and I've, I've lost 45 pounds. Yeah. Uh, and I've been taking all these supplements from my health food store. And I probably did something in my heart and I'm, you know, scratching my professor beard going, well, good for you for losing weight, but that's not going to change anything. <laughs> yeah. And I know what you did with the supplements. You made expensive urine, which I firmly believed back then. And he says, oh, come on, let's just do another movie of my heart. So we did. And this guy in six months time had cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries wow. by, by changing right. what he ate. And I'd never seen anything like that. I was taught that that was impossible, that, but there I am looking at it with my own eyes. And interestingly enough, when I started talking to him about his diet and the supplements, um, it was actually a diet that I had done my thesis as an undergraduate at Yale University on human evolution. Yeah. And so I was a big fat guy back then, and I was running set, uh, 30 miles a week, going, doing 5K and 10K on the weekends. And you were still and, overweight at this time? Oh, yeah. I was what was called a Clydesdale runner. Um, yeah. There was uh, big, big fat runners, and yeah. we were called Clydesdales for obvious reasons. <laughs> and I was eating you know, a healthy, low-fat diet, at, you know, because that's healthy. Yeah. And I had pre-diabetes and high blood pressure and horrible cholesterol and arthritis so bad I had to wear braces on my knees to run. And so I started, um, actually, I called my parents who lived in San Diego. I said, do you still have my thesis? And they said, yeah, I've actually got it up here on the yeah. counter. And I said, send it up. And so I put myself on this program and lost 50 pounds my first year and I started taking a bunch of supplements. This program that this that Big Ed had told you about? No, actually in, in my in thesis. thesis. And that program happens to be the plant paradox. So now, you had written your thesis and then you had not for those all those years you hadn't adhered to what you'd written about? Nope. I went off to become a very famous heart surgeon and just kind of threw all that in the trash. Yeah. And, uh, and it's funny, um, there I was, I would, you know, I would operate on people who looked like me, looked like Big Ed, you know, and yeah. I'd go, oh, you know, poor guys, uh, but that's not me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So what happened after that, when I had all these changes, my prediabetes went away, my blood pressure went away, my arthritis went away, and my cholesterol changed dramatically. So I would operate on people. Yeah. And then put them on my program after I operated on them. And right. sure enough, and this is while I was still at Loma Linda, and yeah. sure enough, we'd see all these changes. And then one day, uh, I was looking in the mirror before I went into work. And I, I literally, it was a Friday. And I said, you know, I've got this all wrong. I, should, sh I shouldn't operate on people and then tell them how to eat. 
I should tell them how to eat first, and then I won't have to operate on them. Now, as a heart surgeon, that's a really dumb career move. <laughs> and, you know, and my colleagues would say, what, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're trying to put yourself out of business. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And yeah. boy, that was really prophetic because I certainly you know, ended up kind of putting myself out of business as, as a heart surgeon. And even an academic heart surgeon can make a pretty good living and yeah. teaching people how to eat um, is not a way to make a good living. <laughs> Traditionally, yeah. Yeah. So what so, were the tell-all signs then that made you feel that I need to stop this, I need to move on, regardless well, of the money, regardless of the fact that you were losing all this business? I mean, the signs were just so so obvious to, you know, me and my patients. You know, they when we first started doing this, they'd, they'd call on a weekly basis going, there, there's something you're giving me. One of these supplements is causing me to be dizzy. And, yeah. uh, you know, what is it? I'm, I'm going, nothing in here that makes you dizzy. You know, come into the office. Let's take your blood pressure. And their blood pressure would be low. And we go, well, they're on, you know, two or three drugs to lower their blood pressure. And, we, you know, we'd stop one. And, yeah. and so... The same thing, people who are diabetics, they'd call and say, oh, my gosh, you know, my blood sugar is so low. Well, you know, what are you doing that's making my blood, pressure, blood sugar so low? And I go, nothing, you know, but get in here, let's check. And so we'd reduce their insulin or we'd take away, you know, one of their uh, diabetic drugs. And people would go, boy, you know, I used to have horrible arthritis in my hand. And look at this, you know, I had all these little nodules and they're gone. And you go, well, this is just the wildest thing. Everything, and cholesterol would change. Yeah. So, so, you know, with every passing day, everything I'd been taught about, you know, health, obviously was wrong. And, you know, it just, it, after about a year of this, I'm, you know, literally, I can't stand the fact that I, you know, knew that I could keep people, you know, from, having all these diseases if i could teach them how to eat yeah i think that's absolutely fascinating so you felt that your work was almost contrary to what you actually believed at the time and that was maybe the cause of you fully transitioning yeah i mean for instance i was taught and certainly most of my colleagues are taught that coronary artery disease is a relentless process that maybe we could slow down with statin drugs or maybe a low-fat diet, just as an example, but that it was, you know, an Ezra, it was always going to occur. And that's why when, even when we do a coronary bypass operation, we kind of say, well, you know, we'll see you in five or seven years and we'll, we'll do it again. And yeah. I was actually famous for re-operating on people. Yeah. But then to see that this wasn't, you know, fate, that this wasn't what was actually going to happen. And then, you know, looking at cultures where this never happened, you, you start saying, gosh, every, you know, everything I was taught uh, isn't true. And yeah. maybe I should be the one to uh, you know, help set things straight. So what was the key supplement or supplements then that made that happen? <laughs> Well, it, it's interesting. Um, I 
among other things, became famous for protecting the heart during open heart surgery from damage um, and for keeping hearts alive in a bucket of ice water yeah. uh, for transplant for 48 hours by putting certain substances uh, down the veins and arteries in, in the heart. Um, and when Big Ed showed me his list of supplements, which he had just actually kind of picked willy-nilly from a health food store, yeah. se several of those supplements were what I was using to protect the heart. And while I was giving them down veins and arteries, he was swallowing them, and it never occurred to me to, to swallow them. And yeah. so I started swallowing things. Uh, and I've, through the years, made a list of things that I think were profoundly deficient in. And, uh, you know, we can get into that if you want. But I think the important thing is that supplements don't make expensive urine. I, I check my patient's blood work uh, every three months. Yeah. And uh, for instance, we'll, we'll tell them, you know, I want you to go get some methyl B12, a yeah. form of vitamin B. Yeah. And I want you to put it under your tongue. And we're going to do that because you have a gene that you don't make B12 normally. And it affects a chemical in your blood called homocysteine. And we're going to bring it down if you take this. And so I'll have a patient come back and I'll say, you're not taking, you know, methyl B12. Oh, yeah. Take it every morning. No, you're not. I can see here that your B12 is low and your homocysteine is still high. No, take it every morning. I say, and you're putting it under your tongue, right? No, it's so sweet. I put it in my coffee and I drink it. And I go, <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. It, you know, it has, it yeah. has to go under your tongue. Yeah. Or So that's just an example. Um, yeah. And so these were really enlightening to me, a skeptic who said, come on, you know, vitamins and supplements don't do anything. Yeah. But just to give you an example, in modern era, we now there are now five different papers published in humans that show the level of vitamin D that you have, vitamin D3, in your blood really is going to affect whether or not you're going to catch COVID-19. And if you catch it, how severe it's going to be. In other words, the higher your vitamin D level, the less chance you have of getting COVID-19. And if you get it, the less severe it will be. Wow. Yeah. What, a, what a value bomb drop there that no one knew about, eh? <laughs> More vitamin D in your blood. Exactly. And for years, uh, I'll give you a vitamin D story. For years, I was taught, um, most of us were taught that too much vitamin D is toxic. And some of the things that it's said that vitamin D toxicity can do is make kidney stones, make uh, too high calcium in your blood, even giving you uh, neuropathy, a tingling in your feet and hands. And so years ago, I met an older couple in their late 70s, first time, and we always measure vitamin Ds. And just so listeners have a game plan, um, Vitamin D was thought to be toxic above 100 nanograms per milliliter. And these guys, both of them were like 270. So I'm looking at these guys. They look pretty healthy. And I'm going, wow, um, you guys take a lot of vitamin D. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a longevity vitamin. 
and I'm, you know, I'm looking at him. First, of, first of all, I'm going, well, why aren't you dead? Uh, I, literally, that's what went through my mind. And the second thing I said, um, ever had any kidney stones? No. Why? Uh, any numbness or you know, in your fingers and toes? No. Why? I said, well, it's just that you, you know, you should have these. You, you have vitamin D toxicity. So, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, it's, it's, it's They were telling life. you, the doctor, not to be ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going, you know, uh, I'm supposed to be the smart person here. but the, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, actually, I dedicated one of my books to my patients because yeah. most of what I've learned, I've That's learned from that. a patient asking me a question or yeah. telling me something I didn't know. So that actually made me start reading about vitamin D. And lo and behold, most of what we're taught is, is myth and has no basis in fact. Right. That's mad. I yeah. think I think one of the things that I'm most fascinated by, Doctor, is the fact that you can have all these supplements, right? And the Inspiring Young Aspirers podcast is about inspiring you to live your ideal life. And so what you virtually are, you're the mechanics behind living that. And so the reason you're on today is to sort of help us with that on that side. So these supplements, right? Surely you can't take all these great supplements, but then have a shocking diet and still be able to perform at your max level. And so what... That's, where, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And so where did you realize the connect between these two? Is it unique to each person? Or are there set things in terms of supplements and diet that you feel apply to everyone? Surely. That's a great question. So one of the things that have made my mission in the last 20 years is to convince people that what's going to happen to them, to their performance, to their fate, to their mental energy is actually determined by their gut microbiome, by the five pounds of bacteria and molds and parasites that are living inside of our intestines. Yeah. And um, the more research, uh, a lot of which I've done and certainly many others have done, has convinced me and I think the growing community that our fate is actually in the hands of what we feed our uh, microbiome. We give them the foods that they need. And they'll, in fact, transform uh, the chemicals, the supplements that we eat into useful products. And with every passing day, we know that unless you have the proper microbiome, yeah. you might be able to eat what you think is a really healthy diet and you actually won't get the benefits of what you're eating. Um, and you won't get the improved performance that you're looking for without, why is that? well, without their help. So we, these, for instance, so my next book is called the energy paradox, mm -hmm. which will be out in March of 2021. Yeah. And the energy paradox, it turns out that much of what, happens with our production of energy, which is controlled by these little organelles called mitochondria, is determined by the communication system from the gut microbiome, literally telling these uh, mitochondria to make a lot of energy or not make a lot of energy, depending on, if you will, the mood of the gut microbiome. Yeah. So what are the worst foods for it then? Ah, so the worst foods, unfortunately, are simple sugars and saturated fats. Mm 
uh, which is the standard American diet. So (laughs) people use the word processed foods or fast foods or ultra processed foods. What, What we've unfortunately we're learning the hard way is that back when we actually ate whole foods that were hard to digest that we actually a lot of that food was never digested by us but was instead food for our microbiome and it was feeding the microbiome that made all the difference i'll give you an example that Um, the godfather of fitness in many people's minds was a guy by the name of Jack LaLanne. Mm -hmm. And many people, uh, younger generation, only know the Jack LaLanne juicer. But Jack LaLanne actually had a television show in the 1950s where he pranced around basically in a leotard um, (laughs) teaching teaching exercise. And one of Jack LaLanne's favorite expressions was if it tastes good, spit it out. And one of his other favorite expressions was you wouldn't wake your dog up in the morning for a donut and a cup of coffee. Um, (laughs) Because obviously a dog, (laughs) that's not what you'd feed a dog. So a lot of my advisors, my handlers say, will you stop telling that Jack Lane story because <laughs> you're trying to convince people that, you know, to take, to eat stuff that tastes awful. Well, that's actually not what Jack Lane was saying. Jack Lane was actually saying you shouldn't be eating for your taste buds. You should be eating for the bugs that live in your gut. And yeah. all of my books basically say Jack Lane was right. He didn't know how he was right, but yeah. If you eat for them, they'll take care of you. We're actually a condominium for our bugs. Right. And you, you keep them happy, they'll they'll keep the place looking nice. So how long does it take after you eat something for it to actually reach your gut? And the reason I'm asking is because I had a client, for example, who believed in colonic hydrotherapy. And so basically just brought people in who are on shocking diets. They get a colonic once a month, they'd feel great, and then they'd go and have a shocking diet for the rest of that month and then just come back in the next month. So what is the relationship between once you eat something, how it enters your gut, and how it affects you in the immediate slash long term? Stop. I'm interrupting my own podcast to talk directly to you. What do you care about? What is your deepest passion in this world? That is what you need to be doing consistently. So now that you know that, how can we align your content with those goals so you can build a personal brand that sells? That's everything we touch on in my eight-week personal branding accelerator. I'm opening up my next 50 spots as we speak. So DM me on Instagram at Billy Garton Jr. And we'll hop on a quick 10-minute phone call to see if you're a good fit. Now back to the episode. So great question. Uh, First of all, uh, colonic hydrotherapy uh, got its start in uh, Victoria, England. In Victorian England. And... It started with a theory that became very, very prevalent called auto-intoxication. And it said that the bacteria in your gut and in your mouth were actually producing toxins that were killing you. And it became part of uh, the treatment of auto-intoxication to recommend that every so often you clean out all those bacteria in your gut. 
It turns out that that was probably one of the dumbest things that you could possibly do. Right. Uh, it's like throwing out the, the baby with the bathwater, as the old expression goes. Right. Uh, it got so extreme that in the 1940s, people would literally have their colons taken out and all their teeth removed. To, uh, and it actually got crazy. Uh, so... For instance, it depends on the food you eat. So you could have a glass of orange juice that would spike your blood sugar higher than a Coca-Cola. Yeah. And yet people think, well, orange juice is healthy yeah. uh, without realizing that your blood sugar could spike tremendously. Mm -hmm. uh, we now know that depending on the the microbiome that's within you, you and I might be able to tolerate completely different foods. And we might, both of us eat the exact same food and you would stay skinny and I would gain five pounds if we did the experiment over two weeks. Right. The exact same food. And it's because the bacteria in our gut have literally the ability to eat some of their food, that food for themselves and make more babies or take that food and make it more absorbable to you. And you would gain the calories from that food. Right. So the whole idea, the old saying was, you know, calories in calories out, um, to lose weight, you have to eat less and exercise more. We now know, um, and yes, repeated all the time, that that's absolutely not the case because we've never compensated for these five pounds of bacteria eating food. Yeah. And for instance, there's some evidence that 30, if you do it correctly, 30% of all the calories that you eat will be eaten by bacteria. And you won't get them. So what a great uh, formula for staying slim. That's mad. Yeah. So say if someone's had a, a bad diet up until now. Yeah. What's the way of cleansing that? Because I've been taught that there's a lot of waste buildup inside of you and you can revamp your diet and all this sort of stuff. But if you have this past and this history of fast food, processed sugars, all that type of stuff... How do you relieve that and almost start fresh? To use an English expression, that's poppycock. <laughs> uh, there, there is no toxic buildup in your intestines. Uh, people who go on a detox diet in general end up releasing toxins into their bloodstream that cause more harm. In the plant paradox, for instance, we've shown that a three-day cleanse of eating primarily green foods and having a green smoothie, when three days completely changes your gut microbiome from a bad microbiome, a bunch of gang members, to a bunch of good guys, which I call gut buddies. Only three days. Yeah. And the studies have been shown, though, that if after the end of three days, you go back to eating the way you did, 
within three days, you'll be back to the same set of bad guys. That's why you can go to a place like oh, a health spa or Canyon Ranch, just to throw out a name. Yeah. And you can eat twigs and bark for a week and hike and then go back and eat your same crap and you'll undo everything very quickly. So what are those keys then in terms of, here's the thing, I've heard you talk about meat, right? And Mm -hmm. I think this could be a way to maybe pivot a little. I've been someone who very recently has become fascinated by a sort of pescatarian diet because I'm also Mm -hmm. an athlete as well. I'm a professional athlete. And so I'm trying to find ways to get the energy levels, the protein and all that sort of stuff while balancing the health side of things. For these people who, like you said, the green diet, um, where do you find the protein levels, the energy levels to continue to sustain such high level performance? So just remember that the number one, the largest animals on earth only eat plants. The uh, gorilla has more muscle mass than you and I could ever imagine. A horse has more muscle mass than you and I could ever imagine. And all they eat is plants. Uh, Gazelles will beat you in a race anytime and all they eat is plants. So the idea that we have to have uh, protein from animals for maximal performance uh, is again, one of these wonderful myths. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I am what I call a, veg aquarian, which I think is the opposite of a pescatarian. I eat primarily uh, a vegan diet, but on the weekends, uh, we eat uh, shellfish and fish. Um, But do we we need that for optimal performance? No, we don't. Uh, You can get oodles of protein from plants. You get protein from leaves. But if you really wanted to add additional protein, you can certainly get protein from hemp. You can get protein from beans with the proviso that you really should pressure cook beans because beans have these really nasty plant proteins called lectins, which Which we will touch on for sure. (laughs) Uh, And even now, some of my biggest critics in the uh, vegan community um, admit that they pressure cook their beans. So, yeah. uh, what the heck? So, for the audience who's listening right now, ninety-nine percent of them are probably cringing at the thought of eating this entire green diet. And even myself, at times, I'm like, all I can picture is the fact that I don't feel energy from that. And so, if you were saying to somebody, "Here's your three-course meal for the day," or sorry, "Here's your here's your meals for the day: breakfast, lunch, dinner." All I can picture having hearing you speak, and I'm sure 75 to 90% of people are thinking the same, is like leaves, broccoli, kale. So what would be the, the keys that you would throw into that diet? Oh, you don't, I mean, you don't need just leaves. For instance, um, I think there's two things we should talk about. If you want more energy, the first thing you should do is skip breakfast. Um, right. breakfast, the idea that we should be eating breakfast as the way to start and get energy is really also founded in myth. It was actually started by the Kellogg's Cornflakes Company as a method to get people to eat breakfast. Uh, the idea of eating breakfast is a newfound, really only over 100 years what if, you, what if you work out in the morning, Doctor, or if you have these, these high I'm so glad you asked me. 
it turns out that your energy, your workout will be better in a fasted state than in a fed state. Better performance or better results? Better performance, better performance. And in fact, um, there's really good research that show you will have better performance as an athlete in a fasted state than following a fed state. And if you think about it, evolutionary, first of all, we, there was no such thing as breakfast. None of us crawled out of our cave and said, what's to eat? There was no storage system. Yeah. And unless you were actually super rich, you didn't have breakfast unless you had a servant go making it for you. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you look at hunter-gatherers like the Hansa, um, who, quite frankly, are great performance athletes, uh, they do not eat breakfast. Their first meal, maybe lunch, but is usually dinner where they break fast. And the French had no word for breakfast. First meal was déjeuner, which was lunch. And they had to invent petit déjeuner for all the tourists. Um, So the idea that we should perform fed is actually counter to evolution. We actually have evidence that if we were starving, we would have to have peak performance to catch that gazelle or to outrun a tiger. And there's good studies that show the fasted state improves performance. It goes counter to all. Remember, we're being bombarded by companies that want to sell us stuff, performance enhancing meals, breakfast, energy snacks. And there's just the, the evidence is actually counter to what companies want to sell us. So for someone like myself, who my entire life has been told you need to put on weight as a, as a soccer player, you need to put on weight because I'm thin and I'm frail. So you believe that I could skip breakfast, just eat lunch and dinner on a, on a green plant-based diet and still be able to put on weight, have the energy levels to perform at my max? Yeah, so the good news for you is, I mean, you can use lots of proper resistant starches to put on weight. You could have all the millet and sorghum you wanted. You could have millet pasta. You could have sorghum pasta. You could have mixing bowls full of millet and sorghum pasta with olive oil. And you can put on weight. Um, It's actually a, a really great way to do it. Let me give you an example from Italian athletes that I talk about a study that I talk about in the Energy Paradox, the new book. They took Italian athletes and they put them on a feeding schedule. They gave them the exact same calories, the exact same meals. One group had to eat breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning, lunch at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and dinner at 8 o'clock at night. Which is what I do. So that's a a 12-hour feeding window. The other group had to eat breakfast, break fast at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, lunch at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and dinner at 8 o'clock in the afternoon, a 7-hour feeding window. The muscle mass increased on the shorter eating window and... They actually gained muscle mass but lost fat mass, 
and these the shorter eating window. And the other really cool thing is they lowered their insulin-like growth factor by uh, a pretty good margin, which is a longevity marker. So I really like people to try and compress their eating window. Can you compress that eating window at any period of, of the day? Correct. Uh, in fact, there's some really interesting studies looking at uh, fasted, uh, the Ramadan. Uh, Ramadan is the month-long fast where you only eat two meals a day. You eat your first meal uh, before sunrise, and then you fast uh, until sunset, and you don't even drink. Uh, so literally fast, and then you eat your second meal. And this has been looked at at athletes, and they they perform, it was interesting because they were looking at athletes who were Muslim and obviously yeah. you got to perform. They had no detriment in performance, but the benefit of the Ramadan fast was that key markers for stimulating cancer, for repair genes actually went up in the athletes who were doing the Ramadan fast versus the ones who weren't. So you, the point of all this is the longer you can go without eating, uh, in, and so whether it's in the middle of the day or whether you like to combine that with sleeping, uh, the better off you're going to be as, a, as an organism. Uh, and that has no relation to weight. That has no relation to I think that's absolutely fascinating. Because no, and in fact, so in fact the, Ramadan, yeah, the Ramadan fasters had no change in weight. I think that's incredible because the common... Hey there, Young Aspirers. I wanted to take a break here and just talk to you about how I started my podcast. So starting a podcast can be quite daunting. You got to figure out camera equipment. You got to figure out sound, microphone, background, lighting. And that could be hard to think of. But when I found Blossom Media Studio, they made it so easy for me to just focus on what I actually care about, which is speaking to my guests on a weekly basis. Everything from pre to post-production gets taken care of. All I have to do is do what I enjoy, show up and record. So big thanks to Blossom Media Studio. Now let's get back to the episode. I think that's incredible because the common diet is often, there's a massive diet that is, uh, I don't remember what the diet's called, but you fast after your last meal and then you don't eat until I think it's around 1 p.m. every day. And yeah. that's, that's mainly a diet that I've seen people use as a way to lose weight. Yeah, and that yeah, that's called intermittent fasting yes, exactly. or time yeah, or time restricted feeding and I mention a lot of it in all my books and the energy paradox is going to go into that uh, even more. But what's really interesting about intermittent fasting that we've neglected is we we have all these circadian clocks and circadian clocks uh, we have clock genes that determine, uh, for instance, an athlete, if you have to uh, fly to the East Coast back before COVID yeah. to compete in a game, uh, your circadian clock is thrown off three hours. And it turns out your own gut microbiome has its own circadian clock. And even your muscles have their own circadian clock. Right. And I think a lot of sports teams realize this, that those sort of time changes really affect your performance. Yeah. And it's because jet lag occurs because of these twists of circadian clocks. And what's really cool about 
limiting the time that you fast is there's times for repair that have to happen to the lining of our gut. There's times of repair that have to happen to our mitochondria, which after all are the little organelles that produce energy so that you can perform as an athlete. Yeah. And the, the repair time is actually probably more critical than, than anything we ever realized in terms of repairing our gut ability to absorb nutrients. And more importantly, I hope you as an athlete know that you know, exercise works by damaging muscles and then the muscles in the healing process make more of themselves, make yeah. more muscle mass. Yeah. And you probably know that repeated games day after day really take their toll because yeah. you never have that repair process. Yeah. So we're beginning to realize that it's the same with eating, that we have to have a reparative downtime uh, to just continuously eating. I want to Who knew? I want to talk about this circadian rhythm because I think... I want to touch a little bit on maybe the, the consistency of a diet if you feel that there is a need for that. Um, same time, same eating schedule, same habits, or whether you need to break that. What are your thoughts on that? Great question. So we actually have circadian rhythms that follow seasons. And we know this from watching hunter-gatherers like the Hansa in Tanzania, yeah. who totally change their gut microbiome depending on the season. So for instance, they essentially have two seasons, a dry season and a wet season. And during the dry season, they are pretty proficient hunters and they'll go after big game yeah. and they'll change their diet more towards a game-based diet. Uh, that's because the animals are around water holes and they're easier to find. Yeah. In the wet season, they tend to eat tubers and honey and berries. So they, they really vary between kind of almost a, a meat-based diet and almost a, a vegetarian diet. Yeah. And their microbiome shifts. And when you look at these sorts of people and compare them to for instance, people living in America, uh, their microbiome is much more diverse. Uh, there's lots more different species, and the species vary from time to time. And the, the research is that the more diverse our microbiome, the more different guys we have, and there's 10,000 different bugs that have been discovered so far. Yeah. And the variation in those bugs from time to time is probably very important in health. So no, I don't think that people should uh, have the same diet. For instance, I've written about this. Yeah. I generally only eat fruit in season in the summer and early fall. And then during the winter, I really don't eat fruit. Just because something's been hybridized to exist year-round doesn't mean that we should be eating it. And just because you can bring blueberries from Chile to San Diego in February yeah. uh, that doesn't mean that you should be eating them then. Uh, so it's this, this change that I think is important. 
I think that's absolutely fascinating. So you believe that here's something I want to go into. In fact, because I thought a lot about this before our call and I want to, I want to dive deep into it now with marketing in this day and age and, and the way that these mass companies promote their products, there's a lot of deception that goes into foods that we eat, what's good for us, what's not good for us. And in fact, it's not even that a, a lot of it isn't fact. A lot of it's just basic lies. And so from your understanding what are those bad foods that that are being promoted as healthy one and two what are those foods that are being promoted as maybe not necessarily healthy but help you in one particular factor of your life that is maybe false well so i think so much of food advertising uh, has from the beginning not been based on any fact, but on things that people want us to know, just like, for instance, the tobacco industry or yeah. big pharma. Uh, just as an example, uh, cereal did not exist um, until 1906. Mm-hmm. And the Kellogg's Corn Flakes Company was, was founded in Battle Creek, Michigan by and Venice doctor, William Kellogg. And it was advertised as the first pre-digested meal. And it was so wonderful for you because your body didn't have to do any work in digesting it. And so it was the perfect food. And it was literally advertised for that. And what people don't know is that simultaneously the United Fruit Company, which is now Chiquita Banana, was trying to find a market for bananas, which was the first fruit that could be picked green and then shipped and then ripened. And so they made a deal with doctors to tell people that a banana was a great source of potassium, which it's not. And that the healthy way to start your day was to have a bowl of Kellogg's cornflakes with a sliced banana. And they even put a coupon in every box of Kellogg's cornflakes for a free bunch of uh, Chiquita bananas. And so, you know, it's like Hitler knew. If you say an untruth long enough and loud enough, it becomes the truth. And so most of these advertising gimmicks uh, were learned way back then, and they continue now. And the tobacco company uh, just perpetuates these, you know, these advertising methods. You say something long enough, and you say untruths long enough, and it becomes the truth. Just like, you know, the most important meal of the day is breakfast. There's actually no evidence that that's true. But if you say it enough, everybody knows it. Every nutritionist knows it. Are there, is there no oath by doctors that, that is taken when you do your research that you cannot promote something that is not true to what you believe? So here's the deal. The problem is doctors get about an hour of nutrition training. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. I had um, uh, Donald Kessler, uh, Dr. Donald Kessler, on my podcast uh, a little bit ago. He's got a book uh, called uh, Fast Carbs, Slow Carbs. He, he was the head of the FDA 
back in the Reagan era. And when the food label came out and the food label was designed to kind of tell you, okay, what's in here. And one of the things that was on the original food label is that sugar was going to be counted under carbohydrates. And the and it was going to be called sugar because there was you know, proteins, there was fat, and there was sugar. And the food companies, when they found out that this is what was going to be done, literally, he tells a story, marched into Reagan's office and said, you can't let that guy tell people how much sugar is in this product because, you know, you're going to, all hell's going to break. Yeah, it's going to kill our business. So as he tells the story, Reagan drags him in the office and says, oh, geez, you know, we got a big problem. Um, you got to fix this. So the fix, which is still in today, is that if you have two sugar molecules that are bonded together with a chemical bond, you don't have to call it sugar. You can call it a complex carbohydrate, and you can list it under carbohydrates. Yeah. And then the next column down is fiber, which is indigestible. So then there's sugars. And then there's the new category, added sugars, right? So he likes to use the example. He said, let's let's read a package of something you probably have every morning. And it's got uh, zero fat. It's got zero sugars. It's got four grams of protein and it's got 33 grams of carbohydrates and it has zero fiber. He said, what is it? And I said, "Eh, about everything on the store shelf. He said, it's actually a bagel. He says, so, so wait a minute, that looks pretty good. There's no sugar in that bagel. He says, but that's not true. You have to take the total carbohydrate, 33 grams minus the fiber, which is zero. There's 33 grams of sugar in that bagel. Now, what does that mean? It means there's four grams of sugar per teaspoon. So there's basically eight and a half teaspoons of sugar in that bagel that you think is healthy for you. Eight and a half teaspoons. So that's like saying, no, you know, I'm going to pour, you know, a half a cup of sugar on my hand and eat it. And quite frankly, I'd probably like it more than the bagel. That's scary to think about. But that, so that's how these things are rigged. And uh, is that the, the only way? That, that's one of the best ways. The other way it's rigged is uh, serving size. Yeah. So, for instance, an energy drink, uh, the serving size may say two. And of course, nobody ever does that. And a package of, let's say, potato chips may say serving size, you know, two and a half or three. Nobody ever does that. They they eat the whole thing. So you just, everything, there's a catch to almost everything. The other thing that is fascinating, when, when you and I eat a whole food, uh, let's, let's just take a sweet potato, for instance. We actually use energy 
to digest that food. And it's called the cost of digestion. Modern foods have been engineered so that you don't really use any energy in digesting them. It's like pre-digested Kellogg's cornflakes. So you could eat the same amount of calories in a sweet potato and the same amount of calories in Pringles, which yeah. is pre-digested potato, and you'll absorb far more calories from the same caloric amount eating the Pringles than you would from the sweet potato. But that's not advertised. But of course not. They, don't want, you, they, they want you to eat this stuff. So is there any way to solve this? I know we're going bigger there and, and we're, we're targeting the food industry, but is there any way to solve this from, from that side of things? Well, yeah, the problem is, and Dr. Mark Hyman, who's a friend of mine, is going hard at this as well. Big food and big pharma and big agriculture, all and big, and big chemical like Monsanto and Dow, these, the boards of directors all kind of sit on all the same boards of directors. For instance, the former head of Monsanto is now head of the FDA. And quite frankly, Monsanto and the FDA is kind of like a rotating chair. And most of the board of directors of large medical schools, which are now dependent on big pharma and big food for their research, they all intermingle. So where it has to start is that individuals have to start saying, I got to make a stand for something and I've got to become my own advocate and yeah. get back to why I did this originally. Somebody has got to start telling people just like cigarettes that we've been lied to. I mean, the head of the American Cancer Association in 1948 said that cigarettes have almost no contribution to lung cancer. And if they did have a contribution to lung cancer, it would be a minimal at, at best. That, that president of the American Cancer Association. I can't, and that was purely out of paid out to say that for a marketing oh, employee. Yeah, yeah. I mean... For instance, uh, thanks to the New York Times several years ago, we know that the School of Nutrition at Harvard yeah. was paid, the chairman was paid generous stipends from the sugar industry to do research to prove that sugar, in fact, was good for you and wasn't a part of our plague of diabetes and obesity and paid to do that. Why is there nothing in place, doctor? And this may be something that you know or you don't know. Why is there nothing in place that says that you can't take money to to promote something like that when you're in? You're literally, this is people's livelihood. This is their health. This is everything. Why is there nothing in place? So a study in the British Medical Journal uh, last year looked at the um, not advisory boards, members of councils of most of the professional societies, like the American Heart Association, like the American Diabetes Association, like the American College of Cardiology, just right. uh, in 87, 80, 88% of them 
had a consultation, one or more consultation agreements with the very industries that they were regulating, 87%. So nearly 90% had a conflict of interest with the very things that they were regulating. That's absolutely madness. So it's, you know, it's the fox is guarding the hen house. And, you know, we can say, and we actually, whenever any of us write a paper or present a paper at a meeting, we have to say, uh, you know, is there anything that you disclose that you're a consultant about? But then the next box says, but I feel that this did not affect my research. And of course, everyone every, puts that. Everybody checks the box. I can't believe that. So, is there anything we can find then, Doctor, on labels and packaging that? Because I've heard that, that certain companies you have to put like in, it has to be on there, and they put it in small letters or anything that says something along the lines of the things you mentioned that sugars come in carbohydrate form and things along those lines. I mean, I think the easiest thing to do is just. To do my little trick, take the carbohydrates on the label and subtract the fiber. Yeah. And that will tell you the grams of sugar. And then just for fun, uh, divide it by four and that'll tell you the teaspoons of sugar. Like I have in my office to show a patient, I have a, a pre-packed thing of um, raisin bran. Yeah. And I say, you know, here, raisin bran. They say, oh, yeah, well, I'm glad you have that there because obviously, you know, that's a healthy food. I said, well, well, you know, why don't we take a look at the label? And there's 45 grams of sugar in one serving of raisin bran, and that's before you put the milk and sugar on it. So there's, you know, there's 12 teaspoons of sugar in that bowl of raisin bran before the milk and sugar. And it goes back to what you said before about... <laughs> If it tastes good, don't eat it. Is there anything, doctor, that does taste good that you can eat? <laughs> you bet. You know, an avocado Sounds... tastes great. And I love avocado. Believe it, Go on. And I, I mean, I have a recipe for chocolate avocado ice cream that'll just blow your mind. Share that with us, doctor. I would love to hear it because I'm all so, over it. So it's, it's actually in, in the plant paradox. Yep. Uh, and you can actually find my recipe online on, you, on YouTube. Beautiful. I'll show you how to make it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's an example. You can make waffles. You can make pancakes out of almond flour, coconut flour, cassava flour. That'll taste just like, you know, just like the real thing. So yeah. food, what I do, for instance, at Gundry MD and with all my books, yeah. is I want food that you love that loves you back. Now, I don't want you to eat twigs and sticks. I really yeah. don't. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that because I also, from an objective slash subjective standpoint as well, I, I believe that what I've found, I've tried different diets and things as an athlete to try and make it work for me. And if I don't look forward to what I'm eating at times, I often, I eat it, but I don't feel good and, and, and I don't feel, I sometimes feel like the energy's not in there. Even even if that food says it's, it's bringing me energy, I don't feel like the energy's in there because I just don't look forward to eating it. It does not bring any taste to me. Is there any relation to that sort of mind-body feeling? Oh, yeah. Just as there is a mind-gut connection, there's a gut-mind connection, and the two feed both directions. Um, interestingly, I, uh, I have several uh, professional athletes that 
uh, actually follow my program. And I'll tell you what we'll do. If, if you don't mind, I'll arrange to have Gundry MD send you a little sampling of some of uh, my I'd products. Uh, see phenomenal. what see what we can do. That'd okay. be fantastic. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Last thing, doctor, before we close this out, olive oil. Yes. I really, really want to touch on olive oil because you are fascinated by it. It's everything you preach. Dive the, into on, the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. And uh, I, I firmly believe that three of the blue zones, the longest living people in the world, use a liter of olive oil per week. To put that in perspective, it's about 10 tablespoons of olive oil a day. There was a fascinating study called the Predimed study out of Spain, taking 65-year-old people who had coronary artery disease and randomizing them to a diet where they, a Mediterranean diet, where one group had to use a liter of olive oil per week. The other group followed a low-fat Mediterranean diet. And the, the group that had the olive oil had, it was for five years, yeah. the group that had the olive oil had a 30% less incidence of a new heart disease, stroke or uh, stents wow. or heart attack. Yeah. The group that had the olive oil had improved memory over the course of seven years, uh, five years. Imagine being smarter at 70 than you were at 65, whereas the group that had the low-fat diet had decreased memory, which you'd expect. And the women in the olive oil group had a 70% less breast cancer incident than the group who had the low-fat diet. Do you believe that that contributes massively? I know I've heard you talk about your anti-aging process and this Benjamin Button sort of theory. Do you believe that olive oil is the, the, the cause of that? Well, it's certainly one of the best ways to get polyphenols into your diet. And polyphenols are these plant compounds that are changed by our gut bacteria that basically signal, for lack of a better word, uh, de-aging in your cells. And olive oil happens to be a great source of these polyphenols. Uh, I, you know, I study old cultures. And one of the things I learned this expression, the only purpose of food is to get olive oil in your mouth. I'll never forget my wife and I were in this little village in a hillside town in, in Italy. And we're in this little uh, trattoria and, you know, they bring out the bread and there's olive oil on every table. And my wife and I are about to dive into the bread and we're looking across the way and there's these three guys and they haven't touched the bread. And then their first course would come out and they pour some olive oil into the plate where they finished the first course. And then they tore off a piece of bread and, you know, soaked it, smashed it, and then ate it. And they did this with every course. And I'm going, well, that's interesting. <laughs> so, and with my halting Italian, mostly just kind of pointing, they said, well, you'd never eat bread before the meal, you, the purpose of bread is to sop up the olive oil that was in each course and pour more on them. Of course, you know, yeah. of course that's right. It's a sponge. That's fascinating. So, yeah. So do you put olive oil in everything you eat then? Yes. Yeah. Every single yeah. meal. Olive oil comes to the table 
And it come and Sorensen. If you're going to eat broccoli, you pour olive oil on it. If I'm eating clams, I pour olive oil on it. Um, if I'm having an omelet with mushrooms and spinach in it, I'm pouring olive oil. And there's no amount that's too much. No, literally three of the blue zones use a liter per week. That's absolute. That's so contrary to to every because I've always been taught everything's good but in moderation. Except olive oil. <laughs> Except olive oil. And as I told the researchers at Harvard when I was presenting a paper that everything in moderation, I said, well, that's fine as long as you like moderate heart disease, moderate <laughs> Alzheimer's disease, and moderate cancer. Well, that's brilliant. <laughs> and what a way to close it out anyway. Doctor, before we actually close this off here, you've obviously been fascinating. You've been inspiring. There's so much more we can talk about, and I'd love to have you on again soon. Where can people find you? Talk a little bit about your book that's coming out soon. So the, uh, the, the current bestseller is The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age. The Energy Paradox is the next in the series. It'll be out in March of 2021. It's already available for pre-order. You can find me at drgundry.com. You can find me at gundrymd.com. I've got two YouTube channels. You can find me on Instagram and you can tune in weekly to the Dr. Gundry podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Phenomenal. Well, everybody else, I have been fascinated by this episode. You need to go back and re-listen to this and I will tell you why. Every guest that we have had on this podcast has been about inspiring you to live your ideal life. You cannot live your ideal life without first idealizing your diet. And so that's why we had Dr. on today, so he could help us fix our diets so that we can live our life with maximum energy and fulfill our maximum potential. You know what to do. Give me a follow at Billy Garton Jr. Subscribe to the Inspiring Young Aspirers podcast. We've now hit the top 100 in entrepreneurship in Great Britain, thanks to you all. The top 30 in Portugal, I don't know how that's happened. <laughs> top 15 in Ireland, I'm not even Irish. I don't know anyone in Ireland, but unbelievable. Keep it going, keep subscribing, keep leaving reviews. Doctor, thank you so much again. Everybody else will be back next week.